This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. book of Ruth is set at the time of the judges where Israel didn't have a king and it was kind of like the dark ages basically of Israel where there was kind of massive ups and downs of believing God and then drifting away from God. Times where they called on God for God to help them and then times when uh, they slipped away. And at one time uh, we, we heard at the beginning of Ruth you hear of a, a family husband Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two boys and they live in Bethlehem, and they're farmers in Bethlehem, and they leave Bethlehem to go to Moab. So they leave the place where the land that God's given them, the land that was promised to them when the Israelites took over the land, they leave that and they go to Moab. Now Moab is like, like a pagan, it's great having babies, isn't it? You're all thinking, no, the babies are annoying me. No, I think it's life. Oh, you know, come on. But they move from uh, Bethlehem, uh, to Moab, and in one sense, they move from God's people and God's land and God's place to to a, a place where it's not God's land. It's a, a pagan land. It's a land where there's idolatry. It's a land where uh, they sacrifice their children in the fire. A land of uh, uh, where the gods called the destroyer. But they move. Um, we talked about that. They move from from this place is the good place because there's no food, because there's no immediate comfort, and they move to Moab where there is food, but actually it's the wrong place. And we talked last week about how it's so easy for us to move from where God has called us to do to something that looks easier. And then what happens is tragedy follows them. Tragedy follows Elimelech, and he dies. Uh, and so Naomi's left a widow. And then her two sons, who married Moabite women, they die, and they're left widows. So they've got these three landless women who are in danger, obviously, in ancient ancient Near East, without husbands and fathers, without land, in danger of uh, rape, enslavement, starvation. And they're in a vulnerable position. And then they say, she hears, Naomi hears, that God has lifted the famine and there's, that there's food back in Bethlehem and they go back. They leave Moab and come to go to Bethlehem. And then uh, Orpah decides, no, I'm going to go because there's going to be no husband for me and no safety for me. So she goes back to Moab. But Ruth makes this amazing kind of covenant promise that um, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. It's almost like she has this conversion experience where she says, no, I'm leaving Moab and everything that stands for in this kind of pagan idolatry and I'm going to trust God. The quote that we kind of finish with is, Ruth trusts Naomi's God in spite of Naomi's bitter experiences. Ruth is the picture of God's ideal disciple. Faith in God that sees beyond bitter setbacks. Freedom from the securities and comforts of the world. Courage 
to venture into the dangerous and the unknown. Radical commitment to relationships appointed by God. And so she makes that big step into the unknown. So Ruth's kind of our hero in this story. She makes the big step into the unknown. And when Ruth and Naomi come back, you find out what's in Naomi's heart and we're going to find out what's in Ruth's heart. So you find out what's in Naomi's heart. It says at the end of chapter 1, it says the whole town was stirred because of them. You've got to remember that actually Bethlehem wasn't a very big town. It's like if you think of a cultural village, probably a little bit more than that. People farmed around in the fields. And when they came back, everybody knew their business. Everybody knew Naomi had gone. Everybody knew that Elimelech had abandoned his land. His land would have been left empty. And they knew they'd gone. And when they come back, uh, Naomi is kind of drawn, bitter, damaged woman. And that she looks so damaged by the kind of experience of walking away from God's people and then coming back that people say, is this, is this her? Is this Naomi? Surely it can't be Naomi. She doesn't look how she used to be. It says that the woman of the town exclaimed, can this be Naomi? And then Naomi says this uh, difficult thing. The Lord's hand has gone forth against me. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord brought me, brought me back empty. And Naomi's like, just thinks, oh, it's just been terrible. It was a bad mistake. And, 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 and we ended by saying, actually, she comes back empty and bitter. Bitter's not a great place to be. But empty is a good place to be in that sense because really she comes back saying, God, it's you that I need. But then the, the, the chapter finishes where it says, and the writer intrigues with this line, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Just as the barley harvest was beginning. There's almost like this sense over the horizon is this God's blessing that seems to have eluded them. Over the horizon is God's saviour. Uh, over the horizon is this amazing thing where God's going to take them out of just worrying about their own circumstances and put them in God's massive story. So let's read. I'm going to read first 12 verses uh, from Ruth. If you've got a Bible, if not, I'll try to read it as well as I can. The writer just helps us with a little bit of biography before he gets into his story. It says, Now there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. So it just helps us with that. So when Boaz turns up, we kind of know. Ruth, the Moabite, interestingly, you know, even then she's the Moabite. She's not Ruth who's part of the community. She's Ruth the foreigner, Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, and I think there's kind of a shrug here, all right, my daughter, Go ahead. So Ruth went out and gathered the grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. And while she was there, as it happened, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted his harvesters. He's obviously a good Anglican because he said, the Lord be with you. And they answer, also with you. No, they answer, the Lord bless you. The harvesters replied. And then, and then Boaz asked his foreman, Who's that young woman over there? So the field would have had a lot of workers. You know, it's not combined harvesters, it's all hand, hand harvesting, lots of uh, men harvesting, lots of women tying sheaves, you know, it being that kind of thing. And so there's a large, fairly largish crowd, I don't know how many, but there's a lot, and he, but yet he notices, he just happens to notice Naya, uh, Ruth working over in the fields, and he says, who's, who's that over there? 
Who's that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? Interesting insight into the culture at the time. You, as a woman, you weren't a woman. You were just somebody's possession. Who do you belong to? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she's the young woman from Moab. There we go again. She's the foreigner who came back with Naomi. Everybody knows the story. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters, and she's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Obviously, they're resting from the sun in the noonday. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, listen, my daughter. Interesting the way phrase is used, my daughter. Stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field that they are harvesting and then follow them. This is interesting, again, insight into the vulnerability of women at that time. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water that they, the men, have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here amongst us as complete strangers. And then he says, prays for it. He says, may the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this little insight of this story. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would teach us good gospel lessons out of this. I pray we'd learn something about your grace. We'd learn something about taking initiative. We'd learn some things about the weight of small things. And I pray, Lord, as we work through this passage, I pray, Lord, that, that, that it would go deep within us. I pray by your, by your grace and by your spirit, it won't be something that we hear and evaluate and forget. But I pray, Lord, that you'd help me and you'd help us to hear your word, retain it and be changed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it's interesting. If you were, I was at a thing on, uh, on Tuesday at Cambrai and uh, one of the guys is a, fr- a guy that I knew, a friend from uh, Manchester who was doing the talk. Tim Welsh from Cambrai had invited me along and a, few, and a, a bunch of church leaders. And he, one of the questions he asked that kind of stuck out uh, from the discussion, uh, we were talking about kind of, how to build a discipleship church. And he said, one of the things is, if you ask people, what do they expect from belonging to God's people, you get interesting answers. So why don't you do that? I'm not going to ask you to do your answers, but why don't you just turn to the person next to you and say, this is what I want. If you haven't got anybody near you, you can move and squish up. What do you want from being part of God's people? Okay? Just come your answers, and then we'll see what he says usually is the top answer. Okay, now, interestingly, he said, he said that if you survey, and he works for the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, so they do surveys, he says if you survey a range of church, churches, the top answer is cookies. No, sadly, most churches don't caught up with that one yet. What, do you, what, anyone want to guess what the top answer is? What, if you, close. What they, the top answer is, I want to be cared for. I want to be cared for. Now, it's interesting. It might not be the answer, top answer in this church, but interesting, I want to be cared for. Because we've talked about gospel, whose good news is the world, you're in a mess. The world out there is very bad. 
you're likely to be in a mess out there. If you come here into church, we'll care for you and sort out your problems. Yeah? So one of the things that, that people in church, he says, they expect people to rally around and care for them. Now that's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And actually it's interesting, as Naomi returns home, the people, God's people talk about her. She's doing a bit of a mess, isn't she? This is not the Naomi we expected to come home. Is this really Naomi? But what they don't do is what? Care for her. They don't rally round and care for her. Now, I'm not saying that's right or wrong about the people of Bethlehem, but what they do is they don't care for her. And it's interesting that, what's the state of Naomi's heart as she's come home? She's come home bitter and angry. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. So what happens, I can imagine as Naomi comes home, I don't know if they've got a house, assume they find some kind of house, maybe their old farmhouse is kind of a bit wrecked and whatever, but they kind of move back in. I don't know what the state of their accommodation was, but assumably that she's got some place that she's called home that she's able to go back to. And I can imagine her uh, start moaning about God. Well, he's let me down. I'm one of his people. He should have cared for me. I've had this disaster. I've been off from a far country. And now I've come back. And where's everybody rallying around to care for me? And actually, I think it's interesting that in my experience, people who are, who, are, who are angry with God soon become angry with who? Church, God's people. And I can hear Naomi moaning onto Ruth, oh, we've come back and where's the help? We're starving to death here. We're two vulnerable women. We need some help. We need some food. You know, God's people, they're not really very loving at all. They're not very caring at all. They don't really care about us. And I'm one of their own. Why don't they care about us? And you can hear them moaning. In fact, this guy, Neil, said to me that often when people are about to leave his church, the biggest comment they usually make is, the church isn't very caring. They'll say, oh, we don't like the worship, we don't like this, don't like that. And then they say, just like the big punch, he says at the end, the church is very caring. And, um, and he says his response to that is, oh, I wish I was more caring. I wish I could be more caring. I want to be more caring. But the bottom line is, Naomi's not able to be cared for. Because she's bitter. And she cl- takes herself away. I, I think she, I almost see her locked away from community, expecting them to care for her. Now, Ruth's different. Ruth's different because actually um, she, she, she's not sitting and wallowing in self-pity. She's not uh, struggling to face her difficulties. Christians often are the worst ones. And I know from my family, my wider family, that actually my, uh, one of my uh, relatives actually grumbles about God and church all the time. And she feels church has let her down and, and feels like, why has this happened to me? And yet... I know non-Christians who worse stuff has happened to, and they respond better. Does that track with you? Because we've got this expectation that we should be careful and life should be good. And, 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 but non-Christians or people that don't, I've got this expectation, well, no one's going to care for me, so I've got to get moving. But actually, Naomi's bitterness has p- paralyzes her. Her anger paralyzes her. She's not able to take the step that she needs. She's not able to do what she's supposed to do. She's just at home paralyzed. And I think sometimes in church we can, we can talk about doing stuff, but actually we're just paralyzed by, by frustration. 
If you're in church, you've been hurt by church, guaranteed. If you're in community, you've been hurt by community. We can often be paralyzed by what, what it isn't. Blame God and blame others. But actually, Ruth is not paralyzed by this challenge. The challenge does something in Ruth that needs to do in us, gets her attention. Sometimes when difficulties and challenges happen, it's actually God trying to catch, catch our attention. Why? Because he wants to catch us up in something bigger. We've got to believe that. That although there is care in the church, and we'll find that there's massive care that God provides for Naomi and Ruth, it's not that care doesn't matter, but actually that, that, that God wants to catch them up in something bigger. Rather than just providing food for them and comfort for them, he wants to catch them up in something bigger. And sometimes he just pulls back like that because he wants them to do what? He wants them to take a step of faith. He wants them to say, right, I'm going to go and take action. I'm going to do something. And I know, because I've been there, that it's so easy to start blaming God and then blame God's church and not take action. And gradually you spiral down into despair and your faith goes into the dirt. And what happens is Ruth is saying, no, there is something we can do. There's something we can do. And this is not God helps those who helps themselves. This is faith. This is saying, I'm going to take a step. I'm going to do something because God is good. Where Naomi says, I can't do anything because God is bad and the people of God are bad. And so there's this sense where, where Ruth, the Moabite, is not willing to let Naomi's passivity see them starve. She says, I'm going to trust God. Ruth says to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone else who's kind enough to let me do it. And as I said when I read the reading, Naomi goes, all right then, all right then. And I know sometimes when you want to take action, when you want to do a little thing, and you tell it to someone, they say, what? It's not going to work. Waste of your time. What are you bothering? Why are you doing it? It's too costly. Too much effort. Oh, go on then. I'm going to be at my workplace, and I'm going to try and be as faithful and as good and, and hardworking so that, the, that, that they may see my good deeds and place my Father in heaven. Oh, it's not going to happen. What are you wasting your time Tread in water. Gee, I'll go on then. Go on. But Ruth, Ruth's action is not some random thought. It's not some random thought. Actually, somewhere, Ruth must have read, or had it read, it, read to her, because she may not have been able to read, because women didn't go to school. And that. Ruth says, I'm going to go and take some action. I'm going, to, I'm, I'm going to work. And she must have heard somehow about God's concern for the poor and foreigner. You can find it three times, this idea that I'm going to read to you, you can find it three times in the Old Testament. Leviticus 23, 32, you don't need to look at it, but it says this, it's about a little custom, saying to the people who own the land, and they all had a bit of land, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field, or gather the bits that drop from your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing amongst you, for I am the Lord your God. Somewhere along the line, I don't know whether Naomi's been read to or she's read it, God cares about the poor, God cares about the outsider, that would mean me. Naomi's thinking, I'm entitled to God's care. Ruth is thinking, God cares about the poor and foreigner, that means me. So that means when I go and do something, there's hope. 
there's a sense where God might work if I step into what he's doing. So Naomi knew this custom and she knew that Naomi, uh, sorry, Ruth knew this custom and knew that Naomi's God would provide for her. But interestingly, and I felt this as, well, as I'm preparing it, she had to move into it. She had to go and act. They didn't come round with a whole load of gleanings, all the, all the gatherings of the stalks of corn and bring it round to Naomi's house and Ruth's house and say, this is what we've gathered for her. She has to go out and bend her back and work from early morning right through the evening, just a little rest in the middle of the day. She had to go down and pick up the little stalks. She had to do that. It's almost as if that, that, that her action, as she acts, God acts. Well, Naomi's passive, God remains passive. But when Ruth acts, she acts. And I think it's so important that we think, I'm going to act. Naomi, I've often read this and thought, oh, Naomi's too old to go out and do the stuff. I don't think she's too old. I think she's too proud, too bitter to act. She's too bitter to see God has provided. She looks at the stalks and thinks, that is not enough for me. But God has provided the little stalks. God has provided the little stalks for us. Ruth's amazing. She's not, she takes initiative. She's not presumptuous. She goes to the uh, owner of the field and says, in, uh, verse 7, please let me glean and gather or pick up the stalks among the sheaves, among the reapers. She's hard working. It says she's worked steadily from evening with just a short break. She doesn't want a handout. She comes to God expecting God to give her little crumbs from the table. In fact, again, in the, uh, uh, if you go through an Anglican communion, or sometimes even the Baptists have got this phrase that says, we're not so worthy too much to come to your table, but we trust in, in your goodness. Not so worthy to gather even up the crumbs under your table, but we trust in your goodness. And she comes, as it were, to gather the crumbs on the table. And if you remember, we pre- I talked about it last year, if you're around. A Canaanite woman, she, uh, a, a, a Canaanite woman comes to uh, uh, Jesus and says, could you do something to heal my son? And they all, the disciples send her away, foreign woman, send her away, send her away. And she says, even the little doggies gather the crumbs from the master's table. And what does Jesus say? I have not seen any faith like this in Israel. Ruth goes to gather the crumbs, not just the stalks on the ground, but she says, there's crumbs from the master's table, and that's going to be enough for me. She takes initiative, she gets out. Jesus, uh, Ruth takes initiative, and she works behind the workers. And she's looking, it says, she's, I will go out and gather in the fields, looking for anyone in eyes she can find favor. She's expecting not just to gather the corn, but she's expecting God to do something. There's a little hope there, somebody whose eyes I might find favor. Now we know that actually, on one level, whose eyes does she find favor in? Boaz, but actually, God's eyes. God sees and she finds favor in God's eyes. Um, One writer said this, if you want to be theological, divine providence meets human responsibility. God's already planned something good for her. But she takes responsibility, and that's where it interfaces. God's planned good for her, but she steps into it. Now, it's interesting. Ruth picks up the little tiny stalks that the reapers miss. Again, as I'm looking at this, I'm thinking, I'm praying, I'm thinking one of the challenges that often I face uh, is that as I'm preparing week after week for you guys, 
there's a little voice that whispers in my ear, it doesn't make any difference. There's a little voice in my ear that says, it doesn't make any difference. So I joked with my friend Pete, who's a, also uh, leads a church, and I said, it sometimes can feel like your sermons are, you know, today's sermons, yesterday, tomorrow's chip paper. You know what I mean? Like the news. But actually, as I was putting this together and praying, I thought, actually, no, I do believe that the little things that we do, uh, the small things we do, the kind of little bits and little bits and little bits of things that we do uh, are really important. One of our challenges in modern society is we want great adventure. I always think my mate Andy, he, when we talk about, yeah, let's live big for God, you know, he's right there. Yeah, let, we want big adventure. I'm not going to dish, dish you down now. But, you know, there's a sense, isn't that good? Don't we want big adventure? Yeah? Didn't, uh, w- w- was it Carey who said, the missionary said, expect great thing, attempt great things for God. Thank you, John. And expect great things from God. There's a sense where we expect great things. We want great things. We want to do great things. We want to be caught up in God's great story. We want our lives to matter. We want to do great things. But the challenge for me is to do the small things. And we don't see the connection between great adventure and small things. We don't see the connection between God doing great things, expecting great things from God, and we think, well, I've got to do some great thing. It's like in the story of Naaman. He says, just go wash seven times in the river. What, is that it? And his servant says, well, if God said climb some great mountain or do some great feats, you'd have done it. But when he says, just go and wash, you say, nah. And we want to do great things for God. But actually, the, my observation is in our society, and I'm, you know, I'm still young enough to feel connected with culture, we struggle to do the day-to-day. We struggle to do the mundane. We struggle to do the small things. Erwin McManus, a, a guy who leads a church in L.A., he said, it's the weight of small things that make the greatest impact. It's actually how you, what you do in the small things that shapes your character. So I'm walking my dog on the hill, as I do is my method, and I'm, I'm either listening to a podcast or I'm praying, depending on what, how I feel, and I'm just feeling, Howard, you're so bad at the small things. I want, yeah, when we get to this great place, then I'll be the wonderful church leader that I'm called to be. But yet the small things, and you can be the same because I know you're like me. It's the way of small things. So if you, if you talk to somebody about their marriage and it's failing, it tends to be a crisis, but the crisis is not what's broken the marriage, it's the little things. The toilet seat never went down. <laughs> the toothpaste top never got put on. Yeah? That, that, you never put your stuff in the dishwasher. You always had a cup of tea while I'm having a mad Saturday shopping, taking the kids, helping them with their homework. You would just sit on your phone. Whoever that might be. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the little things, isn't it? You never helped. You know, it's not the big crisis, the big character things. People that have married the wrong person. Now what you've got is a person who's not attention to the small things. And we know that. I know that. You remember the American space shuttle that crashed? Not the one that crashed on the way up, but the one that crashed on the way down. I forget which one it was. The one that, that died, crashed on re-entry. Somebody going to tell me what it was? It's about 10 years ago. And the reason why it exploded was a small tile, heat-resistant tile, a, a small tile, literally about the size of this, size of my hand, 
had fallen off the underside, which takes the heat on re-entry. And they think, why is it blown up? And then they found out one small tile had gone missing. The small things. The small things. The American Revolution, doesn't it? What's it start over? What do they fight over? It's a tax on tea. It's going to make you pay a little money with your tea. Tea shops. Rebellion. Yeah, or what about the American Civil Rights Movement, which I kind of love if you read the history of the American Civil Rights Movement, Martin Luther King, the great march on Washington, the changing the laws, the sort of beginning of the emancipation of, of blacks in America. It starts with what? Does anyone know? It starts with a, a lady, thank you, Rosa Parks, who says, I will not sit at the back of the bus anymore. It's little things. The little things matter. Ruth picks up the tiny stalks that the reapers miss. And we've got to get beyond, well, when I get to this point, I'm going to do the big stuff for God, and I won't have to do the little stuff. One of the challenges of being a church planter is, you, you think you look at these guys with massive churches, and they, they get to kind of swan in, and they seem like they don't have to do anything, and everyone else does everything. You know, and I, and I dreamed 21 hours of going to church later, I thought, it's going to be glamorous, it's going to be great. I'm going to, you know, but actually, when you get in there, 25 years later, you think, Actually, it's the small stuff. It's the small stuff, not the big stuff. And now you're very aware, and I'm very aware of my weaknesses in some of those areas, small stuff. But actually, guys, I'm aware of some of your weaknesses. And then there's a brilliant bit here. It says, as it happened. I don't know what you've got. If you've got a translation, some might say, by the way, or it turned out or whatever, but the phrase, as it happened, is like for the writer, a colloquialism. Well, it just happened. It just, it just happened. It just seemed to turn out. He's talking about like, isn't this amazing coincidence? That's the kind of phrase he's using. It just turned out she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? Boaz was a wealthy man, and we've, we've heard that. And while she was there, it happened that Boaz, it just happened. That Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted his harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Then it just so happened. I imagine that just so happened. Didn't? That's not in the text. He just noticed. He just noticed Ruth. I just, it just so happened he noticed her. I love the phrase. It just so happened, because it's basically saying, is this a coincidence? Is this just kind of a random act? Isn't it really interesting? It just so happened that Ruth decided to go glean the barley fields. It just so happened that Ruth was in Boaz's field. It just so happened that Boaz came to his field that day. It just so happened that he noticed her. It just so happened that Boaz had already heard about Ruth. Oh, it just happened. William Temple, who's a 16th century Puritan, said this. See if you know it. He says, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. I like that, do you? When I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. When I act in faith in God, coincidences happen. When I don't, I don't. When I sit at home like Naomi, nothing happens. Not my Naomi, you know, the Naomi in the story. (laughs) When I sit at home and do nothing, nothing happens. When I act in faith, when I believe God, when I pray, coincidences happen. Now, I believe that God can do amazing things, that God can, when you pray, do miracles. And sometimes I've seen those things. And you think, isn't that amazing? And you think, we better write a book about this church. 
Because there's miracles, miracles, miracles. And I'd love some some breakthroughs and miracles and stuff. And let's believe God for those. But actually, sometimes the day-to-day of church and the day-to-day of life in your workplace is, it just so happened. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. In fact, um, Einstein said this, not that he's a great theologian, a good scientist. He said this, coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. But actually, we don't agree with that because we want God to get the glory. It just so happened. It just so happened that Lucy met Laura at the school gate. It just happened. Sorry, to, I just thought I'd draw the ladies in at the back. You know, it just happened. And I think that this is so true in the kind of missional endeavors of the church, in our everyday lives, to just say, actually, let's do the little things. Let's pray. Let's believe that in my workplace, at the Star College, you know, uh, wherever that place down the road, working with kind of vulnerable adults, trying to place them, you know, whatever, school teaching in Tewkesbury, I won't name all of you. But in that sense, that actually your life is is loaded with significance. It's loaded with, it just might happen. What would it look like if God were to bless you? We prayed about this in the prayer meeting. If God were to bless you so that you could be a blessing. That's the promise to Abraham, Adam. It's a promise to Abraham. It's a promise to David. It's a promise to Jesus and those who follow him. That I will bless you so you'll be a blessing. What would it look like for God to do something? It just so happened. Just so happened. I want to believe that. That's what the G1C updates are about. It's great that we say there's food and stuff. But what we want is those little tiny things that actually no one had noticed. It just so happened I just bumped into somebody and gave them an invite for the quiz and they came. Wow. Coincidence. Just so happens that the lady that my wife's invited to the quiz, he, uh, he plays football with us on a Monday night and they know Mark and Soph. I just, well, it's just coincidence. Why is Naomi working? Well, it's just a coincidence. No, it just so happens. God likes to work in those ways. And we've got to, to do that. Um, Tim Keller's written a book called Every Good Endeavor. And in that book, he talks about just take those little steps of maybe. Who knows what God will do? Jonathan and his armor bearer. Jonathan says, um, let's go up to the Philistine camp. Maybe, this is in 1 Samuel, later on, from, maybe the Lord will work on our behalf. Maybe. It might just happen. It just so happened. Okay, so then we meet with Boaz, and we realize he's God's man. He, he greets them, doesn't he? He says, the Lord be with you, and they answer, the Lord bless you. If you want to know a person's relationship with God, I'm getting this down. If you want to know a person's relationship with God, listen to how they talk. Listen to what they talk about. Again, I'm challenging myself. Listen to what they talk about. Is there life saturated with God talk. And I'm not talking about, let's have a big discussion from the Bible, or we can do that, you know, about did God call us or do we choose him? Let's have a big discussion about that. I mean, that's valid, isn't it? But actually what we're talking about, how does how does that impact our life? That God is sovereign, that God's provident, that he works one way. How does that work? We need to have more gospel conversations that people come around us and it's, it's normal for us to say, hey, it just happened. Look what happened. Look what... The, so he's saturated that, he shares the, shares his life with, with them, and that needs to be part of our culture. And then, it just so happened that Ruth notices Boaz, and she says to the foreman, 
Tell her who, and he says who Ruth is. And he says the Moabites who came with Naomi. It's pretty clear that everyone's been talking about uh, Ruth's situation and that Ruth's got a good reputation. Boaz approaches Ruth and you can imagine that Ruth doesn't look her best. She's been working all day. She doesn't have her nicest peasant clothes on. Uh, she's kind of not had a chance to do her makeup and sort herself out. I, I find it amazing. My, uh, my sons, if, they ever, if we ever get them into town to buy some clothes, you need some new clothes. I can't be bothered to go to shopping. Can't you buy them for me? No, you've got to try them on. You know, they go into town. They look scruffy. I think, Zach, you can't wear that. Don't wear that. Say, Jeff, you can't go in your onesie. <laughs> Damaris, <laughs> you know, she's, she's getting herself sorted. Now, I think that, that Boaz is like the big wealthy guy. And Ruth thinks, oh, why, why now? Why does he come over now? I'm looking shocking. You know, if I'd had a chance to do my hair, you know, if I'd known, I would have put my best frock on and, and I, you know, I'd have, I'd, have, I'd have plumped up and freshened up and a look, whatever, I don't know what you do. <laughs> you see them in the films, don't you? It's kind of pride and prejudice. They do that to make their cheeks look red. I guess you guys just put it in half a bottle now, don't you? Whatever. But you know, she'd have sorted herself out. And, um, but actually, I don't think, get me, I don't think that, Boaz is drawn to Naomi, to Ruth because she's a looker. We're told nothing about how she looks. And the Bible often tells you when a woman looks good. So it helps you get the context. Esther, she looks good. Obviously, Abraham's wife, Sarah, she looks good because Pharaoh and other kings are going to grab her and whatever. You know what I mean? We understand that, but I don't think that's the dynamic at work here. It's not just, oh, she looks good. There's something else about her. So Ruth goes up, Boaz goes over to Ruth and says, listen, my daughter. It's lovely, that language, isn't it? He doesn't say, who, who are you? Get off my land. <laughs> you know, shotgun, boom, take your dog. You know, whatever. It's like, here's my daughter. Listen, my daughter. Stay here with us. It's lovely language, isn't it? When you gather grain, don't go anywhere else. Stay right here behind the young women working in the field. And see which part of the field they're harvesting and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you're thirsty, help yourself to the water drawn from the well. He allows her to stay with the female workers. He provides, it's the first kind of child, it's first vulnerable adults policy. He, he says, just, you can stay with the ladies, you're going to be safe. None of my workers are going to harass you behind the sheds, uh, or behind the hay bales. It went on, guys. That's why he says it. Because it's there, it went on. And then he says something amazing. It's not just, he says, oh, we're, not, we're going to look after you and you can carry. He says, when you are thirsty, you can have water that the men have drawn from the well. Now, it's interesting. The women used to draw water from, from the well and give it to the men and the animals. And then the women would have theirs. But he says, the men have drawn water, my servants have drawn water, and you can drink it when you want. Who in the whole field had that privilege? Boaz. My servants will draw water and you can drink it. God's privilege to drink from his spirit. I'll draw water, you can drink. She's given that status equal with his own. And then this, we'll we'll get this down now. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such loving kindness? He asked, she asked, I'm only a foreigner. Boaz says, yeah, I know you're a foreigner. But I also know everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. And I've heard you left your father and mother and your own land to live here amongst us. 
And then he prays for him, May the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, reward you for what you've done. So Ruth bows down, as is the respect in the ancient Near East. And she says this, What have I done to deserve such loving kindness? Now, I don't do this very often, but there's a word there from Hebrew, which it, 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 I, I probably pronounced it wrong. John might correct me. It's, it, the word is hasid. It's basically spelled H-E-S-E-D. It's like a little word, and we don't have a word for it. Let me just tell what it means. It basically means freely given, unfailing, sacrificial love. All that in that word, all packed into those five letters. Freely given, unfailing, sacrificial love. Ruth is saying, what have I done to receive something freely given, sacrificial love that's costing you? What have I done to do that? And actually, Hasid carries this idea of someone acting for the benefit of others without considering what's in it for me. It it wraps up love and mercy and grace and kindness. Love and mercy and grace and kindness all wrapped into this word. Whose word is it? Who does it describe best? Jesus, God, it it describes God. This kind of hasid, this freely given, unfailing, sacrificial love. It's kind of God's character. It's God's word. And it's like she says, who am I to receive this gospel? This wonderful good news about, about freely given love. Who am I? And the answer is, you're no one. You know, you're, you're from a pagan family. You, you know, your mother's a nutcase. Your mother-in-law's a nutcase. You know, you, you're a pagan worshipper. You're, you're a foreigner. You're poor. You're a woman. You're nobody. You know one to deserve this. But actually, this is the gospel word for us. When you hear the gospel about God's loving goodness and kindness, you should say, what have I done to deserve this? And the answer is, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. So what's motivating Boaz to act in this God-like way with this freely given mercy, unmerited grace, sacrificial kindness, unfailing love? What, what's, act, what's motivating Boaz? Well, on one level, it could be because um, Boaz has heard what she's done. He's heard the good story of how she kept her after her, looked after her mother, uh, mother-in-law. But actually, I think there's a deeper level that Boaz's prayer uncovers, I think, the real reason. May the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge, fully reward you for what you've done. Why is Boaz so moved to look after Ruth? Why is he so moved by her desire to shelter under the God of Israel's wings? Let's finish with this one idea. Does anybody know who Boaz's mum was? There's a quiz question, Paul. Oh, he's not here. Boaz's mum. I didn't know until t- yesterday when I'm digging into this. You are amazing, man. Rahab. Who's Rahab? Prostitute, foreigner. Story, Israel attacking Jericho. The spies go out, and then what happens is that, that she comes to this place, uh, they come to this place, and they're about to be killed, and... Th- Rahab, the prostitute, hides them in the in in her house, and then lets them down out of the when the guards have gone, lets them down out of the house on, on a rope. And she says this. 
Now, swear to me, said this to the spies, Rahab says it to the spies, now then, swear to me by the Lord that you will show Hasid, loving kindness to my family, because I've showed Hasid and loving kindness to you. Give me a sign that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers and sisters. Rahab's a prostitute. I think she's a forced prostitute, like we heard a couple of weeks back about. Stop uh, help for, hope for justice. I think she's a forced prostitute. How do I know that? Because she says, spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, and sisters. Either she wants her husband killed, because he's forcing her, or she hasn't got a husband. And then what happens is, Jericho falls, and only pe- the only people that survive are Rahab, her mom and dad, and her brother and sisters. And it says, and Rahab lived amongst God's people. What's Rahab? What's Boaz's mother? She's a foreigner. She's poor. She's vulnerable. She's exploited. She's an outsider and she comes and finds loving kindness. Hasid in Israel. This is Boaz's story. Look at my mom. Look what she's like. Look at the stuff that could have happened to her. Look how she's been exploited. Look how she's been rejected. Look how no one cared for her. Look how she's been uh, mocked and embarrassed. Look at that. And now she's come under God's wings and loving kindness has come to her and she's married this great guy called Shalmon. She's married this great guy and he's obviously obviously wealthy. Because Boaz is wealthy. Well, maybe Boaz is entrepreneurial and made his wealth himself. But I suspect that Boaz's dad is wealthy. And what happened, this amazing, rich, amazing, great bloke says to this vulnerable, poor woman, why don't you come and marry me? This is the gospel. We finish here. This is the gospel. We are poor and vulnerable and broken and foreigners and forced and exploited and dirty and filthy and full of shame. But we've come and took our refuge under whose wings? The God of Israel. And who's married us? Salmon's married Rahab. Boaz is going to marry Ruth. Jesus has come and married us. We say, who is this? Who are we? Who are we to deserve such freely given mercy, such unmerited grace, such crucified sacrificial kindness, to receive his unfailing love? Who are we? No one. But we've come and we, like Ruth, and be caught up in this great story under his wings. Boaz is moved because it's his mother's story. He's moved to reach out to her because it's mother's story. Guys, this is our story. You, Rahab. Foreigner, outside. We've come to take our trust in Israel's God. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to gather you. Like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't. But so he's gone and gathered us. Unworthy, nothing to do with it. And this is our story. So it should stir us to say, let's believe God. Let's not sit at home and think, why isn't the church doing its stuff for me? Let's believe that there's a God who's full of grace and benefit, who wants to provide for us, who just wants to draw us out to believe him, to take that little step, to do that little way of small things, that, that God by somehow, by what just happens, could, could make it happen to, for us, that we would receive his loving kindness. It's a great story, isn't it?
Don't you love it? The whole thing of loving kindness. Guys, we have come under God's mercy. Let's uh, finish as we worship. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.